0: This is The Visionary, a Future You podcast. Hi and welcome to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You initiative. My name is Cecilia.
1: I am Victor, we are founder and member respectively of Future You, and today's host of this episode of the Future You podcast.
0: We are joined today by Professor Frank Schimmo who is the winner of the 2020 Michael Andrews Prize, the visiting professor of the Hertie School, of our own Hertie School, Professor and Chair of European Politics at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. And as we have known in another exchange, we are aware of the fact that besides thinking of you, you like traveling, ah, if only it wasn't for COVID. And Playing the guitar in this jazz band, which by the way, I find very, very interesting.
2: And which is also not possible currently.
0: Yes. <laughs> Actually, maybe trying like this podcast platform to, uh, to play some music together would that be possible? I don't know.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Professor, for being with us today. It's an honor for us to have you as our guest of The Visionary. And we would like to know. What inspired you to study about the European Union? Well, first of all,
2: hi, and thank you for having me in this recording. And yeah, I think I remember when I was a student of political science in the 1980s, I actually thought the European Union, at that time, of course, it was the European community, was pretty boring. I remember that I tried to avoid the classes I had on European integration because it was all about The milk quota and butter mountains, very special, complicated processes of policymaking in very special fields. And I think I really became interested in the European Union a few years later, when these momentous changes happened in Europe. The end of the Soviet bloc, the sudden prospect of a much wider Europe, including the East, also the projects of the internal market and monetary union. So when things really happened and European integration started to acquire a whole new dimension, this is when I thought, okay, this is really interesting. And when I turned my interest as a PhD student then to the, to the European Union.
0: I got very interested in European affairs when instead the threat, figure threat, or disintegration became a little bit more real with Brexit, when all of a sudden I started thinking, you know, I, I took for granted the European Union all my life until 2016. I was like, wow, it's not granted at all. And I found this very interesting, this contrast.
2: Yeah. I mean, these are, of course, very different time periods in, in yes, the history exactly. of, the, of the EU. Yeah. So when, yeah. when I got interested in it, seemed yeah like a process that didn't really have any end or any threats to it. Yeah. It seemed to be ever increasing in membership ever increasing in policy tasks that were allocated to the European Union. But of course, we are in a very different period now.
0: And then coming back then to now, what are you currently researching and why is it relevant?
2: Well, I'm trying to juggle a a couple of research uh, projects currently. So I'm working on differentiated integration in the European Union, which of course has become an important constitutive feature of European integration in recent decades. And currently, I'm mainly working on the effects of differentiated integration. So I think we understand the causes of uh, differentiation rather well, but we don't really know very much about what it means for citizens, how how citizens think about it, and uh, what differentiation means for the future trajectory of European integration. Is it a slippery slope yeah, that leads to the unravelling of European integration, or is it, is it actually helpful as a pathway towards more European integration? I think that's the big debate now, and this is what we do research on. I also work on a comparative study of the European Union's crises. I think what we've seen is that the uh, different individual crises, the Eurozone migration, Brexit, and democracy crises have had very different outcomes. And I think it's uh, hugely important to understand under what conditions these crises make the European Union more resilient, which are disintegrative, and what one would have to do yeah, to ensure a productive outcome of these crises that we've seen and that I think we will see more more to come in the future in this period. Finally, I've just started a project on which is called Rebordering Europe. I think what we also see is that there is an increasing role of external factors in European integration, which uh, we haven't really paid much attention to in the 1990s or 2000s. Many of the developments at the borders of the EU or beyond the borders in the neighborhood of the EU have an increasing impact on how European integration works and how it develops. And I think this is something we haven't really theorized well in the past, that we do not really understand well, and but I think it has an ever increasing impact on how European integration will develop in the future, and I think we need to know more about it.
1: This is very interesting, especially the rebordering Europe part. And to all our listeners, we truly advise you to go and check out some of Professor Frank's research. And as an academic, a lecturer, what would you say is the most difficult thing to explain about the EU? And personally, before coming to study in Berlin, I spent all my life in Brazil, so a lot of things seem new. What would be the most difficult thing to explain in your view?
2: Well, I can tell you something from from, from my experience as a teacher of classes on the European Union. And say that those classes that I have most respect for, and that I find most difficult to teach, uh, the classes on the decision making in the European Union. I mean, I struggle myself to understand all the complexities and intricacies of these processes. So first of all, it takes some some time and effort to understand formal rules of decision-making in the European Union, which are, I'd say, more complicated than in any political system that I'm aware of. But on top of that, you also need to understand that the actual informal decision-making is quite different from what uh, the formal rules say. And uh, to understand that as well and to bring that together, I think, is a major challenge, not just for outsiders, but also for insiders, I think.
0: Yeah, every single time I actually have to go and look it up again, the rules, in order to understand before engaging in any sort of debate, just to make sure that my understanding is clear, uh, just because I get easily confused myself. Um, let's now turn to the topic of our Future EU competition. In this very first edition, we have asked the student and researchers of the Civic Alliance to come up with proposals on new treaty reform to achieve their vision for the future of the EU. So if you were given carte blanche, so you were given full freedom, what would you do and why? Well, if I
2: was in this enviable position, and if it was just one thing I could do, I think it would be a very small change to the treaties, which at the same time I think is very fundamental too. So uh, you might have heard of Article 7 of the treaties on European Union, which outline procedure and measures that the member states can take once one of the member states is in breach of fundamental values of the European Union, such as um, the rule of law, democracy, human rights, and so on, which are defined in Article 2. And I wouldn't change anything about Article 2, but I would change something about Article 7 too, which now says that, and I'm reading it from the text, the European Union acting by unanimity on a proposal by one of the by one third of the member states or by the commission and after obtaining the consent of the european parliament may determine the existence of a serious and persistent breach now what this means is that any member state is in breach when any member state is in breach of these fundamental values it needs the unanimity of all the other member states to actually impose any sanctions. And these sanctions could be the suspension of voting rules, could also be the suspension of financial allocations to this member state. So something that would really hurt such a member state. But of course, as we've seen in the recent past, now that we have member states that are in breach of these rules and Hungary, according to the democracy indices that we have, is now officially basically categorized as an as an authoritarian state. We see that Article 7 actually doesn't really work well if there is at least one other member state that is also moving in the direction of an authoritarian state and will support member states in breach from these sanctions. And I would basically change the phrase by unanimity with the phrase by qualified majority. So as long as there is a qualified majority of member states that finds that a member state is in breach, these sanctions could actually be imposed. Now, why do I think this is important? I think the most fundamental thing about the European Union, beyond anything that has to do with supranational institutions and policy making, is the fact that it is a community of liberal democratic states. And I think once this fundamental norm of the European Union is undermined by authoritarian member states, this is a toxic development. It's a slow working poison in this community of countries that threatens to undermine its very value basis, but not just that, it also threatens to undermine its functioning because the rule of law is so fundamental to how the European Union works that any assault on this principle, as we've seen it in Hungary and Poland and now also Slovenia is slightly moving in that direction, would really change the fundamental nature of this union. And that's why I think this is the one thing that I would change if I could do that. I mean, this would not mean I wouldn't go as far as excluding authoritarian member states from the European Union, because in these authoritarian states, there are large chunks of people who would actually like to be in the eu and would also want to change their country again back to a democracy but i think anything the EU can do to put pressure on the authoritarian governments of these countries is really necessary
1: this visionary treaty reform has indeed a a lot of merit and thinking about the context around this possible reform which elements would you point out as necessary to achieve this reform? Well,
2: so now we're we're back from visions to
0: reality, right? Yeah, exactly. Reality check.
2: I mean, you've just given me carte blanche, which, of course, I I don't have. (laughs) And as we all know, changes to the treaty require the unanimity of member states plus ratification in all of the member states. So, of course, as long as you have A single member state in the European Union whose government is concerned about being imposed those sanctions, this government will never say yes to such a change. So we would have to wait for a period in the future that will hopefully come in which the authoritarian-leaning governments of some of the member states will have been voted out of office. And once that has happened, this will be the opportunity to introduce such a change to prevent or at least make more difficult authoritarian reversals in the future. Now I don't know when this will be I hope that it will happen in the future. it is I think also likely to happen. I think in countries like Poland there is still a possibility yeah uh, for um, a change for, for a fundamental change of government. I think also in in Hungary, the time may come that the Orban government will end and will be toppled, although it's much more difficult there. But this would actually be the requirement. Um, otherwise, of course, this will not happen.
0: Well, we've got an example of that just with the last negotiations of the uh, European budget and the next generation uh, EU. Just now, actually, we had this an example of how powerful and how problematic can be the veto power of some countries as soon as they feel threatened, right, by a provisional conditionality on the rule of law, such as uh, Hungary and Poland. We got the chance to just see an example of that just now. Thank you very much. And I would go back now again to our initiative, and our initiative. Future You is, is started by a group of students. Some of us are not students anymore. I'm still a student. But we were thinking very much that these kind of debates are are not often permeating academia to and not often get be shared by students and then not often get to be shared with the wider public. And so Future You was built for and by students in order to foster this kind of engagement in these topics. Ultimately to foster engagement on debate on how to change the you for the better. So you, Frank, after all of what we said, and as a professor, do you think that student engagement is important and why is that the case?
2: Yeah, I think it's a great initiative and it's hugely important, I think, for two main reasons. First of all, the... Student generation of today is the generation that will have to live with the European Union much longer than people like me. And so the future of the European Union is really mostly about your future and your future opportunities as well. So I think it's great that you encourage students to think about the kind of European Union that they would want to have and they would want to live in. Also, I think that, of course, each generation has its specific concerns, has problems, ideas, values that differ. And many of the people in positions of responsibility, those that will be represented, for instance, in the conference on the future of Europe, will be from a very different generation with uh, different concerns and different backgrounds. So I think it's important that the young generation makes itself heard and brings in fresh ideas and new topics to consider for these older people.
0: What do you think, as a professor again, when listening and teaching about European Union and European politics to your students, what do you think are the topics that most likely trigger your students or that uh, your students find most interesting?
2: One discrepancy that I often found is that academics, political scientists working on the European Union... Are often quite intrigued by institutional issues. Yeah? So, questions of decision making, of the rights of different institutions, the interplay of institutions, so the things that political scientists deal with. Of course, students are much more interested in policy issues, in those policies that they find are important for their future, be that, let's say, climate change, the digital economy, the future of work in the European Union. For which as political scientists we are only say half qualified, yeah, because these are economic issues, these are issues that natural scientists have much more to say about. So I think also that say an interdisciplinary take on the European Union and its and its policies is really important, yeah, rather than the kind of topics that political scientists usually focus on.
0: You know, you'd be surprised maybe to learn that one of the teams that participated in our competitions has sent ideas on how to reform the voting procedures uh, in you. The and they suggested a be random allocation of voting power each time, which I found very <laughs> radical as an idea. Shall we go on?
1: Okay. Last but not least, it's likely that you didn't intend to become a scholar right from the start and softening up perhaps the conversation and focusing on you as a child. What did you want to be as a grown up at that time?
2: I think that has changed every year. But what I remember quite vividly is that I used to live in a landlocked region and we spent one summer holidays. I think I was 10 or so at the Baltic Sea, visited some ports and ships. And I still remember that when we returned home the month after that, I was really busy planning my career as a naval officer. Okay, that has passed.
0: I bet actually that little Frank would be very proud of uh, uh, what you ended up doing. (laughs)
1: But,
0: (laughs) But that's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. We are students and I'm definitely in the midst of constantly changing ideas on what I want to do and I have to look back on what I wanted to be like just five years ago and I'm like where did that get lost in the way thank you so much for joining us Frank for being with us today it was uh, it was really a pleasure to meet you and to learn more I have sure certainly learned a lot and actually I would love to keep on speaking and instead for our listeners um, Frank has suggested uh, to check out this book so in particular the new edition of key controversies in European integration by Zimmerman for a thought-provoking take on uh, core European debates so do the next episode
1: <laughs> yes thank you professor for joining us and thanks to our listeners
2: yeah it's been a, been a pleasure Thank you for having me.
0: You listen to The Visionary, a podcast brought to you by the Future You Initiative. If you want to know more about our initiatives, visit us at futureu initiativeorg